and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In. I'm your host, Kayla St. Ange. Joining me as always is my co-host, Tyler Hannon. I'm here. I'm ready. <laughs> He's alive. And uh, this is our monthly recently watched episode for the month of June. Indeed. Wow, it's crazy that it's June already. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not Seems talk about fake. it. I <laughs> uh, hope everybody is doing well in our continued state of global emergency and pandemic. Definitely been an interesting couple of months for us. So I guess what better way to deal with that than to watch a moody, maybe kind of gay, maybe kind of scary, spooky movie about one of our favorite authors, Shirley Jackson, and that is 2020's Shirley, starring none other than Elizabeth Moss. To our suffering, my dear. There's not enough scotch in the world for that. <laughs> Shirley, what are you writing now? A little novella. I'm calling none of your goddamn business. <laughs> well, you were invited to stay here for a few days until we can find a place. Shirley has these bouts. She's gone sick in the head. I read your story. What are you doing in here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible. Tyler, you are the one who suggested this movie to me, and it was on your radar first, so let's just jump into it. What were you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Shirley basically said why it was on our radar. It's about it's a movie ostensibly about Shirley Jackson, which so immediately, what's up? I'm interested. Played by Elizabeth Moss, who's really in a, a just a zone with really suffering in her movies, you know, <laughs> either suffering or defining like a very nuanced portrait of like one of the reviews I read called it feminine hysteria, like with this and it's her smell. And you know, it popped up. It was one of those movies. I'm not sure if I got sabotaged a bit by COVID. It was in the art theaters at a time when we were starting to not go to theaters anymore, but then it popped up on Hulu. So I watched it, you know, how this progresses. <laughs> it's it one of us three movies to be released this year. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so Shirley is a new movie. Uh, it was released by Neon. And besides starring Elizabeth Moss and being about Shirley Jackson, it was directed by Josephine Decker, who released the very, the acclaimed film Madeline's Madeline in the last couple of years and has a couple other movies that have popped up as weird but interesting on my radar. I mean, her first director credit, Kayla, is a documentary called By the Way, like B.I. I don't know anything about it beyond that, but that is like her first co-directorial credit, which, you know, that's fun. So Shirley is at first blush, a biopic about uh, a point in Shirley Jackson's life when she was writing the one of her novels, Hangs, Hangs a Man? Hang a Man? Hangs a Man. Hangs a Man. Uh, except it is based on an, like a fictional novel, and it's basically kind of a riff on Shirley Jackson's life as if she was a character in a Shirley Jackson story. They have not done a deep dive on the differences, but for one, uh, Shirley Jackson had four children in real life. She does not have any children in this. And it's just, uh, it's about this uh, young 
idyllic mid-century couples that comes and stays with them. Shenanigans ensue. I I was going to say, what do we always say? Shenanigans ensue. The husband and wife fall, I mean, basically the husband and wife fall under the spell of their respective the, their older counterparts as this couple is staying with Shirley Jackson and her husband. And uh, it is, what a weird movie, dude. I mean, I mean that yeah. in the best way. <laughs> um, I don't know a whole lot about Josephine Decker, but it seems like what a weird movie is the general consensus about like most of her career up to this point. And I, I don't know, this seems like a really good subject matter for uh, a director like her who kind of specializes in this sort of like very up close and personal and non-linear almost like linear but non-linear at the same time kind of storytelling and I don't know when I watched this I was pretty interested because I had not just recently but recently enough that it was still pretty fresh in my mind learned a lot more about Shirley Jackson's actual life I think that this movie does a good job of kind of highlighting the reality of what it was like to be a creative woman during that time in history and especially in American history. Because in real life, if you aren't aware of this, Shirley Jackson was somebody who struggled with her self-image a lot throughout her life as a child. She yo-yoed back and forth from, you know, weighing more to weighing less. She had diagnosed depression, was definitely an alcoholic, even if that wasn't a thing that people diagnosed in the 50s and 60s. Um, Her husband was um, a professor and kind of, it appears, bullied her into an open marriage, which means that he fucked all of his students and she stayed at home and raised their children. You know, the the, uh, quintessential definition of an open marriage. (laughs) Honey, I told you about it, so it's okay. I'm open with you about all of my students I sleep with. Oh, just absolutely makes your skin crawl. And for a lot of the last decade or so of her life, she was prescribed in tandem barbiturates for her depression, which uh, apparently doctors, you know, used to believe were good for you, and amphetamines for weight loss. Uh, if you're maybe just like thinking that through and you're thinking, hmm, it seems like a really bad idea to take barbiturates and amphetamines at the same time. You would be correct. It is bad. And it made her really miserable and unhappy and anxious to the point of agoraphobia for a lot of the later part of her life. And it really wasn't until she was, you know, like basically only a few years away from when she would die that she kind of gained control back of her life and was able to, you know, not be immobilizingly depressed and stuck in her home all the time. So a lot of the pieces of this movie, even though they are based on a fictional novel that has a fictionalized version of Shirley Jackson, you know, are taken from real life and are really interesting threads to kind of weave throughout this. One of the things that I also thought was really interesting about this movie is the queer subtext, I guess, between Shirley and Odessa Young's character, Rose, lesbianism is a theme that runs through a lot of Shirley Jackson's novels, not so much the short stories. Um, In The Haunting of Hill House, you have Theo, who is a lesbian, and there's usually one or two characters who are coded as queer in her other novels. And so we don't have any, as far as I know, any academic research or like, quote unquote, proof of Shirley Jackson being you know, not straight, but it seems like that is something that was important to her. And I think that having it portrayed in this film is an interesting choice, um, especially given, you know, how their relationship plays out and how they become kind of, you know, codependent and 
unhealthily entangled with each other, I would say. Right. I did. Like I set up the basic premise of the movie, but that doesn't really prepare you for the experience of the movie necessarily. Like it's about, I mean, it's about, it's about so many different things. Like the core of it is the relationship between these two women that starts off antagonistic, but becomes this codependent and for, uh, the younger woman, uh, let me actually get her name, Rose, as played by Odessa Young, as, for her transformational, it, it's just really tumultuous where like Rose becomes a sort of muse for Shirley and like as she writes the story about this missing college girl. And for Rose, it kind of becomes a thing where her eyes are opened about her place and like her relationship to her husband and her kind of her paradigm her view of her place and woman's place in society is totally shifted and we see that these shifting power dynamics throughout the movie um like with shirley like with shirley herself she in some ways has like tremendous power over the people around her but the same has none like she needs validation of her work but also like detest the need for that validation and the relationship with her husband is very odd as well where he is like in some ways this control and like in many ways this controlling figure but they have like just this really perverse partnership where she is seen by all like all of external society as the troublemaker as the weird one like who's locked up inside but he uh as played by a brilliant michael stuhlbarg uh is just as logan lerman as the younger husband is just like this empty blob (laughs) <laughs> like this real nothing of you know a schlubby ac- or not schlubby but this young academic with well, dr hayden is really fascinating as this this really shitty and controlling husband who almost has like a whiplash like relationship with his wife's career where he like is it, it really seems like the, he's portrayed as like punishing her as a way of getting the the best work out of her and also, despite what he says, he delights in how she terrorizes other people at like various dinner parties and stuff. He thrives on that chaos, but he gets none of the backlash for it. Those are really scattered trying to capture all the different things going on in this movie. But that's this movie like really feels like a whirlwind as it shifts from like these really like not psychological, but the like almost like psycho hallucinatory sequences to these like almost like domestic drama in some way it's yeah i would say like for me when i was watching this i think i I texted you and i said that the camera work is straight up woozy and a lot of it was done on handheld cameras which makes sense but one review that i read on letterbox where i i kind of i wish that i had thought of this on my own but credit where credit is due said that the way that the camera moves very much serves to put you kind of in this version of shirley jackson Shirley Jackson's mind at all times, like how just disoriented and unhappy she feels all the time. And again, to kind of pull back to the real life picture that is being adapted here, like again, yeah, uh, she and her husband had a really strange relationship and he was super resentful of her success as this is not just true of 1950s, 1960s. It's true, I think, even now where men are very often threatened when their wives are more talented than them or more successful than them. And, you know, he, in real life, kept her money. Like, he doled it out to her like a fucking allowance and, you know, was 
sleeping with his students and criticizing her work. And it's infuriating. And I think that in the movie, when Shirley tells him, um, basically he is deriding that she's writing a novel about such like a nothing character, like, oh, this girl that just disappeared. She doesn't mean anything. Nobody cares. Yada, yada. She's like, don't tell me that I don't know this person. She felt lonely. She felt rejected. She didn't understand what her place was. She was maybe being pursued by an older man for the first time in her life. And the the kind of like claustrophobia that women felt until, you know, birth control was widely available, until women were allowed to have their own bank accounts or their own careers or anything without having to get their husband or their father to sign off on it. It's just this cloying place they're stuck in. And I think that even the most successful woman of that time was still kind of bound by these societal constraints. And in this film, you see two women, one who is hyper aware of this and trying to shirk it at every chance that she gets and one who was at first not at all aware of it and kind of slowly goes for better or for worse insane quote unquote by the end of the movie because and and that is one of those things when you think of second wave feminism in particular, a lot of that battle was trying to get women to understand that something was wrong because it's super easy to just be like, I am comfortable. I enjoy my life. I enjoy having a baby every year. I enjoy cooking for my husband and that's fine, but it doesn't work for every single woman and getting people to kind of take off those blinders and understand that something could be better, that women could have a better experience or that people would want to read a novel about like one of these crazy lonely girls. Like that is really important. And I think that even if the movie kind of ends on this strange note where it feels like Shirley was just using Rose for inspiration, I I don't feel that that's necessarily the takeaway from it. I think that again, she had her eyes opened to what was going on around her, to what her life could be if she simply stood up and said enough is enough yeah i mean and that's what makes i mean that's part of what i've read of shirley jackson's work feel like so next level and what makes this movie feel kind of next level is just it is not so much as simple as uh, rose calls shirley in the beginning of this movie she says it's like she's such a monster and it's not so much like it it feels far too simplistic to say who we start off seeing Shirley as a monster and then just get like this more nuanced, sympathetic picture of her. Cause like, that's not like to put it, it, that it feels too simple, too crude, too gross to put it that way. Even if that is kind of what happens, it is, it, it finds this balance of like the experimental and the weird and the real and the like, what is based on reality versus what is like inspired by reality to create this real portrait of a human being that is, who is so intelligent and aware, but also like broken in many ways and not by her own doing it's, it's a lot. And I mean, I was also going to say like, can't say enough about how inspired the casting is in this um, and kind of twisted too. like, not just like Elizabeth Moss playing this character just makes so much sense as I joked earlier, but like she, she seems to thrive on these roles and logan lerman playing just like a little lofo a like dude right there. Uh, <laughs> like right like the this cute young nothing uh but also i think even more so 
Michael Stuhlbarg as this husband who like, like, I mean, I don't want to say he's not a monster. I don't want to imply he's not a monster when he say he should just be a monster, but like to cast someone who is just so likable and so charming and charismatic as this really twisted figure is, oh man. <laughs> it, it's good casting, but it's also like, that is what a lot of those kinds of men are like. They are charming. They are affable. You do want to hang out with them. Like it's part of a manipulative spell that's cast, you know? Yeah. And it feels like manipulative casting to have Michael Stolberg in that role, especially when I think his last most notable roles have been for being like a wholesome dad who doesn't judge his gay son or a wholesome doctor scientist who doesn't judge somebody for wanting to fuck a fish. Like he just is really usually like a big teddy bear dad. And I think that that kind of casting is really smart because it can work against you and your expectations. Yeah impressive movie <laughs> yeah this is a tangent but it made me also think of another really famous author from this period uh patricia highsmith who wrote the price of salt which is the novel that the movie carol is based on but she also wrote the talented mr ripley and several other psychological thriller movies but i think that it's interesting to me that both of the very prominent female authors from that age were like mean alcoholics who were super misanthropic and I don't, I don't really know what the point of that comparison is other than to be like wow women just had a really hard time being creatives back then and I am at least glad that it's a little bit better now and that we can kind of look back and understand the contributions that they were making and the toll that those contributions took on them as people and yeah, because I don't know, Shirley Jackson is one of my favorite authors. And it's one of those things where it's a constant disappointment to me that her name is not in that pantheon of like mid-century great American writers where I think it really, really should be. But yeah, I don't know. I'd recommend reading um, Alison Wilmore's review in the in Vulture. The Vulture. One. Oh. It's old, <laughs> uh, but it's because uh, it gets into a, like a lot of that about how she wasn't appreciated in her time and how that is like, you know, how that inspires her character in this movie. And also just like, I, on the other hand, very infuriating to read like specific quotes of people like just rejecting her art for like seem blows my mind uh, silly reasons yeah, yeah. so oh. you should watch this movie if you have never read shirley jackson um obviously haunting of hill house is probably like my favorite place to start but we have always lived in the castle is also really good interestingly enough i own hangs a man but it's the only novel of hers that i own that i haven't read yet so <laughs> i have failed you all i'm sorry i haven't even read that much i'm double failure <laughs> anyway kayla let's move on to a uh another movie about i can't i was gonna do a joke transition but i can't even get through it kayla want, want i'm gonna i'm gonna go clear out some space for you to uh go off on phantom of the opera gentlemen
just take it. Take it away from me. All right. I'm gonna. So um, as some of you may have seen, I posted on our Twitter a small story about how Phantom of the Opera deeply impacted me as a young child. I was 11 or 12 when Joel Schumacher's film version of this came out, and I was deeply on my way to becoming a nerdy, hot topic, goth theater kid in, that I would be throughout most of high school. And to say that a movie or a story like Phantom of the Opera is like quintessential to that kind of experience is an understatement. I guess I just have to start, like this movie isn't good. <laughs> it's probably an important place to start. Gauche, it's over the top. It is showy in some of the wrong places. But honestly, that's kind of what loving musical theater is like and what it's about in a way. So I love it. <laughs> and I don't know. I just, Andrew Lloyd Webber is such an all over the place composer. And I think that this kind of a movie that adapts one of his most famous plays, it just fits. <laughs> like he's a dramatic dude whose most famous musicals are Cats, Phantom of the Opera, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Evita. Like, there's so many things, like, so many tangents, so many stories to tell about Andrew Lloyd Webber as a person. But I don't know. Phantom of the Opera is, like, the ultimate thing that you discover and get into when you are a goth musical theater kid because it's so fucking dramatic. It's so absurd. And rewatching it yesterday, I was trying to understand like what would have caused me to so obsessively latch onto this because like the performances aren't like the musical performances are great, but the acting performance isn't really anything special. I would honestly say that for all of the flack Gerard Butler has gotten for his singing in this movie over the year, his acting performance is really the only one that like does it for me at this point. Like Emmy Rosam in this is an incredible singer, especially considering she was like 16 when this was filmed, which is like gross when you consider the optics of the entire movie, but like makes her singing abilities really interesting here. She kind of just has like one expression in the entire movie. And like Patrick Wilson is there as the Vicomte de Chagny, uh, Raul, her quote unquote real love interest. I don't know. I, the costuming is great. The framing is ridiculous. My favorite part is in the beginning of the movie, and I had forgotten about this, even though it is a huge part of the story, is that the chandelier that the Phantom crashes into the opera house is being auctioned off as lot 666. And it's just like those kind of absurd details that make Phantom of the Opera just this enduring, ridiculous spectacle. And when looking at how Joel Schumacher chose to adapt it with all of these really strange close-ups on the singers, uh, really wild like scene transitions, I think that it's clear to me that he understood that it's in theory ridiculous. And I think that that's maybe where a lot of the negative reactions to the film come from is from people who don't want to admit that 
it's ridiculous. <laughs> like overall, the story, if you are not aware, is about a young chorus girl named Christine Daae who has been being trained by a mysterious vocal tutor and is given the opportunity to take over the lead role in the Opera House's production of Hannibal after their star Carlotta storms off in a huff because she's displeased with the new owners of the theater not being like thoroughly impressed with her enough. And she gets rave reviews and it turns out that her mysterious instructor is indeed the famous Phantom of the Opera who lives in the Opera House and generally causes mayhem and collects a sound. Like, I don't know. I, it, again, the reason that I love this is because the Phantom is really just like a messy bitch who lives for drama. He demands a 20,000 franc a month salary just to not fuck up the opera house. He has his own private box reserved for him at all times. He has been, uh, again, questionably and creepily training a young girl to sing and to be like musical and he's obsessed with her and he's in love with her. And like, I don't know, he's just the kind of dude that wears a half of a mask, flourishes his cape after every sentence he says alone in his candelabra lit lair. He has like a dollhouse that he plays with the little dolls, like acting out his little opera. He has a wax figure of Christine in a wedding dress. Like honestly, just messy. He's messy. <laughs> and I love him. And rewatching this, I kind of was like, um, I'm seeing a lot of problematic threads from what I thought would be like a good boyfriend in this movie because, um, it's definitely not okay to be in love with like a child that you've groomed as her vocal instructor, which I know now as an adult, but when I was 12 and I was watching this movie, I was like, um, I guess like Raul is nice, but the Phantom loved her. <laughs> he loved her and he did everything for her. And she just said, no, they sang the songs and she said, no, like I was horrified. I used to like go on fanfiction.net and be like, what if Christine said yes to Phantom instead? <laughs> and like, yeah, I don't know. This is the longest ramble and it is nothing really. But suffice to say, this movie had a huge impact on me. It's incredibly sad that Joel Schumacher has now died. He has the weirdest career maybe of any like big name Hollywood director. And for me, the most important part of that career was the over-the-top spectacle of 2004's Phantom of the Opera, and it has a special place in my heart forever. And dude, those songs are catchy, okay? Like, they're good songs, <laughs> regardless of the content. I also, at one point during the titular Phantom of the Opera song, he leads Christine and puts her on a horse for like two seconds, and then they get into a boat to go to his lair. And as they're singing and coming up onto his lair, candelabras are just rising out of the water and self-lighting as they come out of the water. And I turned to Ben and I said, just so you know, I want that at our wedding. <laughs> and it's uh, written on our wedding notes board right now. It says, uh, candelabra should rise from fog-laden floor of our Airbnb. Recreate Paris Opera House. Note, I'm not a tenor. <laughs> Meaning it will be difficult for Ben to sing some of these songs. So, Phantom of the Opera is available to stream on HBO Max. You can experience this lovely explosion of glittery garbage for yourself if you want. And yeah, I just, 
feel like I should say on mic, it is entirely true. I used to have a DVD copy of this. I had a portable DVD player that was like probably like a six inch screen and I would watch it like every single night when I was 12 years old to the point where my parents took away my DVD copy of it. And I was so angry <laughs> that my response was just to lay in bed furious, just like with my eyes closed, imagining beat for beat every scene in my head. I was watching the movie in my head because I was like, fuck you guys. You cannot take Phantom of the Opera away from me. It lives inside of me. So yeah. Uh, that's probably up there with Titanic as an important movie in my film buff history. I'm so sorry that I'm like this. Uh, Tyler, what is one of the other movies that you watched that you'd like to talk about? Since you have never seen Phantom of the Opera and have literally nothing to contribute to this conversation. I'm glad you picked up on that. My, uh, my, my, my stance for that entire thing was just like, I'm just gonna let her go as long <laughs> as she wants. I, I dare not interrupt at any point. One of those few times, one of those few times where I am the one who has no idea what I'm saying, just rambling, like no point, no strong theme or anything to tie back to just, it's stupid and I love it. Uh, you ramble so well though. Like I start <laughs> and stop and I change the point I'm making and you just, you just go. I mean, not in oh, a straight line. You just like Go. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that I did forget to mention that is really important before we move on. Yeah. Uh, the one huge mistake that I think that this movie does make is moving the um, iconic chandelier crashing scene from the middle of the, the story to the very end of the story because the drama of crashing a chandelier halfway through the play and then that's the biggest thing that happens in the play is it's like a swing that only Andrew Lloyd Webber could take and succeed at, I think. And I think that it shows that Hollywood didn't 100% know what they were doing when they decided to adapt this because you have to trust that kind of instinct and you have to trust that the audience is going to be like, chandelier crash ends act one. Surely there's half of a play left. <laughs> but yeah, all right, Tyler. <laughs> It sounds like no. it's it's too bad they didn't make the the cats the adaptation happen sooner because it, it really feels like Joel Mock, Schumacher just should have also directed that based on what you've told me. Yeah, honestly, I think that Joel Schumacher could have made it work because again, I think that from everything I see looking at his career, he's the kind of person that knows when things should be silly or knows when things are inherently silly and that you just have to like lean into that so that you aren't taking it too seriously, which is obviously the number one issue with the movie Cats. Man, Joel Schumacher. Like, I, I, I did not have enough appreciation of him. For one, I had no idea he was 80 years old. And for two, I kind of forget that, like, obviously, you know, Batman and Robin and Phantom of the Opera. But then the number 23 was a Joel Schumacher joint? Like, the phone booth? There are so many movies that are Joel Schumacher movies that, like, when people Wild talk, Wars. I think, yeah, I think when people talk about a journeyman director, that, like, Joel Schumacher is that. He can do any genre. And I'm not saying that all of his movies are good, but he just had the confidence and the capability to take a swing at literally anything. Musical theater, superheroes, Colin Farrell in a phone booth. Jim Carrey being serious. Like he just was like, okay, let's do it. 
And that is a quality that I think we can all respect given that we can't get anything weird made in Hollywood at all anymore. So rest in peace, sir. Thanks for my weird childhood fixation. Well, uh, I guess we're going to stick with childhood in a way and we're going to stay with HBO Max, but go to a very different uh, movie that is now streaming on HBO Max. So, you know, it was a big, uh, it was a big news story when uh, it was reported that HBO Max would be getting all of the Ghibli movies, which would be streaming for the first time. And so I'm catching up with a few of the ones I'm missing. And I, st- I started with, hopefully it's not the end, but so like as of now is the last Ghibli movie, uh, 2014's When Marnie Was There. In this world, there's an invisible magic circle. There's an inside and an outside. And I'm outside. That mansion feels familiar somehow. It's really best for you to stay away from that old marsh house. Um, which was directed by Hiromasa Yonebayashi, uh, who also directed The Secret World of Arietti. And as I was going down a Wikipedia deep dive, he's among the people that left Studio Ghibli after this to found Studio Ponok, um, which then did Marion the Witch's Flower. So this movie, I, I actually wrote out a brief plot summary for this. Uh, so Anna is a 12-year-old orphan under the care of a foster mother. Uh, she seems reclusive to those around her and appears incredibly depressed to the audience. And she sent away to like uh, she sent away to live with some of the foster's relatives in the countryside uh, for uh, fresh air for her asthma. And she's drawn to this place called the Marsh House, which I mean, it is a house across a marsh. So it is very literally named. Um, and basically, like, it, it is uh, currently abandoned, but she starts at night seeing this blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl uh, named Marnie, who she, like, and she begins to befriend her, and the story goes from there. I don't really want to spoil it too much. Um, I guess th- it's, it's really good. It is a very uh, beautiful film, both in the actual, you know, hand-drawn animation and the hair and the water and it all looks so good uh but also in the like the actual story it is like a a lovely uh tragic story about like a lonely youth trying to find herself and trying to find herself both in like kind of a literal sense like trying like learning about her past um coming to grips with the fact that she like uh, like the fact that she is a foster child and what that means and what her foster relatives relation is to her like is like whether there is love there or what kind of love it is um and i think one of like and and on a surface level it is just like a a sometimes sad but very lovely movie of a young girl befriending is it a ghost is it like a time nonsense thing going on what like what is happening here but befriending this girl and something magical happening and finding herself but there are some real real dark undercurrents to this movie that are like never like almost never explicitly stated and could very easily be missed but are like 
underlying the whole movie besides like so like the most explicit one is the fact that she's a foster child like she's lost her parents she doesn't know who her parents are that is one of the like that is like the main thing she's coming to grips with but there's also she says it specifically early on but she's just like very depressed to the point of like like what's the purpose of life and like that that is just kind of like undergirds everything um another thing that you realize more truth of later on that is not immediately evident like well unless you catch a specific detail is not immediately evident is there is a certain um i'm going to use a phrase i found in the new york times review because (laughs) but uh ethnic confusion you find that she is like um she doesn't know where parents are and you get like it becomes clearer later on that she is not just Japanese. Um, and it, that is never explicitly stated, but like it comes out that that is also for like all these different ways that she's ostracized either like by those around her or by herself from those around her. And um, even like getting into some child abuse and like neglect issues with Marnie, which again, not like don't come to the fore for quite a while, uh, but just a lot of real dark stuff just roiling under the surface that are part of why these girls are so sad. And uh, I will say it is like I, like, I won't get into what the actual mystery is. It seems like for a bit that it might be like an LGBT sexual awakening movie where Marnie falls in love with a ghost. Uh, that is not what it is. And so I just want anybody watching it. I'm just going to go ahead and rip that bandaid off right now. It is not an explicitly gay movie at all. <laughs> There's Sorry, I just have to bring up because you bring this up review? that the... Oh. No, the single frequently asked question on IMDb is why does the relationship between Marnie and Anna look so romantic? But I do want to point out that this is based on a novel and um, you weren't allowed to write about lesbians in the 1960s when this book came out. So subtext is there if you want it. I, I, and I do <laughs> anyway, think that, I do yeah. think that, that is like, that. I do think the subtext is there. That is just like the most like, subtext of the many subtexts to the point i mean to but it's kind of hard not to think it for a good five minutes as you can tell from one of the top letterbox reviews is i can't believe studio ghibli queer baited me um Um, yeah well and it's funny too when like thinking about this and the other movies that yonobayashi has done like adapting novels about lonely depressed children kind of seems to be his jam because secret world of ariadne is based on the borrowers which is about you know a lonely depressed boy who is sickly in the countryside there's this one um mary and the witch's flower is also based on a novel that is about a lonely girl who gets magical powers and i'm just like it fits with Ghibli's theme, I think, of trying to make movies about children in a way that is realistic. And I think that these are characters that children can relate to and that like the big feelings and big themes are really important for kids to have access to and to, you know, gain some understanding of early in life. But like, oh boy, <laughs> sometimes it's a lot and I'm a grown adult, so. And I know there are some other, like I'm pretty, like I have heard that there are some other Ghibli movies that I haven't seen that absolutely will break me. Um, this one is not, this is not one that will break you. <laughs> it is just my, you wonder for a little bit there. But yeah, it's among the many others that is streaming on HBO Max and I do think it is worth seeking out. And hopefully 
Ghibli will continue to make some more movies. Obviously, Miyazaki has his own, uh, his latest final film coming up, uh, which was <laughs> that one called again? Um, it's a real like existential Ooh, title. Oh, How Do You Live? Yeah. And then apparently Goro Miyazaki is making a movie. But other than that, still kind of up in the air how much more Ghibli we're going to get or Miyazaki. Well, I think that's kind of an important thing to talk about, though. Like Ghibli is a collective of people. It's not like it's very obviously focused on Miyazaki's work. But there are other directors who have come out of Ghibli, other animators and other teams. And so even if Studio Ghibli does not continue as its own thing, we already have one new great animation studio that has come from people, you know, leaving and wanting to forge their own path. And I think that people get really wrapped up in this idea of like, oh, Miyazaki's retiring. And oh, what if there's no more Studio Ghibli movies? But like all of those people are still creatives and they still exist in the world. And I think that we should be able to come to terms with the fact that things don't always have to exist exactly in the form that we first knew them (laughs) for them to be good. And I think that like, I would be really interested just to see what comes of Miyazaki actually retiring and of those people having to, you know, take up the reins of Ghibli and make it their own. Um, This is a moot point because Miyazaki will obviously never actually retire until he dies, but we'll see. I mean, it would be, I mean, I guess, I think we are getting like when you uh, think about movies like, um, I was going to say You're Next. That's not the movie. What was the body switching movie that came out? Your, Your name. name. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, a different you are too. But I, I do think we maybe were approach, uh, appreciating more like foreign animation than just Ghibli and specifically just Miyazaki. Would, I mean, there's, it'd be good for us to, uh, as uh, you know, ugly Americans, to maybe expand our appreciation a bit and not just like fetishize one specific area as if it is like it, it like i you know i just wish there was more ghibli like it, it's it's too bad i don't know i was gonna they, they stop when miyazaki stops I, yeah there's no other thing anything like it anywhere in the world yeah listen embrace your inner weeb okay just do it it's gonna be fine the last stop on our episode train is the, apparently this is the HBO Max sponsored episode because I am going to talk about the delightful Anna Kendrick series, Love Life. I'm, I'm Augie, by the way. Darby. Furby? Darby. Darby. Yeah, Sorry, I know. No, I've gotten Furby before. It's been a little bit wild. Have you found the one? No, I uh, found some losers on Match.com. I just feel like I'm failing all the time, you know? Like, is it always this hard? You go for it, and you get on that dick wag. Mm. It's, yeah, I didn't really realize until we are putting... I guess that's what happens when you get a new streaming service, though. You're going through everything. We put <laughs> all the other movies. Hulu at the beginning, so... That's true. The other movie I thought about talking about was on Criterion, so there's that. But anyway, um, Love Life stars Anna Kendrick and is about a woman going through her early to late 20s and her various romantic entanglements and all of the crazy journeys that come with that and it has a really terrible title I'm not gonna lie I really enjoyed the series I thought it was really nice and a lot of that might just be because Anna Kendrick is just a top-notch actress I have loved her for so long and continue to love her in pretty much anything she does I was a little wary at first 
not realizing that we would be quickly moving away from like early college years Anna Kendrick because she is obviously a little old to be playing those kinds of roles now, especially when like her breakout role is kind of her being a real adult and up in the air. So it's not like you can say, oh, she was a teenager for so many years that like it's okay. We can still go back to it. But I thought that there were a lot of solid choices here when talking about the ways that young women experience love. Like you have your like your first nice boyfriend, you have your shitty boyfriend, like you have um, all of these different romantic experiences. But one thing that I, that I liked a lot that I think kind of pushes the series above it's um, advertised sex in the city for millennials thing, which I don't agree with um, is that several of the episodes choose to focus on her relationship with her mother her relationship with her best friend. So each episode is named after the person that like they'll be examining her relationship with. And when I was first going through the uh, the titles before I watched the entire show, I have to say I was kind of excited because I was like, oh, women, maybe she's bisexual. But I think that the way that they decided to focus on, you know, how her experiences as a child inform her entire dating life and how her relationship with her out of control alcoholic best friend is, you know, part of one of these like great loves of her life. Um, I think it does a good job of making it not just be a series about a woman who's dated X amount of men and now she's finding the person she's supposed to be with. It's more about a woman who is going through life and finding out that sometimes you date a giant jerk and he's terrible to you and you don't realize how terrible it is until you've walked away from it. And you have to examine your relationship with your mom to figure out why you let it happen in the first place. And you have to try to be there for your best friend. But if they refuse to get help, you might have to walk away for a little bit and hope for the best. And I don't know, I just found it overall really, really poignant, just really great. A lot of great performances all around, a lot of great writing choices and just I also love New York and I miss New York so much. And just like seeing New York in a TV series presented in the way that I love to romanticize it is always fun. So highly recommend also available on HBO Max. The whole series is up there now. It's only 10 episodes and they're only like half hour to 50 minute episodes. So it's also not a huge time commitment to watch it. Oh, so it's like about her love life, but she's also (laughs) learning to love her life. Yeah, it's such a bad oh. title. I I really, really wish that it was called anything else. You know, Kayla, <laughs> it makes you think. It really does. Uh, real eyes, real eyes, real lies. It's that level of uh, deepness for you. And it turns out your love life was the friends you made along the way. Kind of, but not really. I think it yeah. is. I think it is. <laughs> So, yeah, um, those are our recommendations for this month. Tyler, do we have an off-topic thing we want to talk about? Um, I mean, maybe, but you, I guess, well, we do have a few minutes still, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, that's true. We're, we're getting up. We have a hard stop for one of the very few uh, times since the early history of our podcast. Kayla, Kayla the uh, industry term is a hard out. We have a hard out. Uh, please uh, okay. use the lingo. Um uh, Okay. Well, in that case, uh, my only off-topic update is that I have decided to get married this year instead of next year. So what? How could you not <laughs> tell me this, Kayla? I have so much preparation to do. Oh my god! Uh, all those yes. tweets you were making about like wedding things—it makes sense now. It all makes sense. I'm always the yes, last person so. to learn anything. 
oh my god whatever so uh my fiance and i will be getting married on halloween of this year which is really exciting in a much smaller ceremony than previously you're thought all invited oh uh, no you are not oh as we are still in the middle of global pandemic no one is invited unless you are specifically invited so sorry mm. but uh considering that weddings are expensive this is a great time if you have not and have been thinking about it to sign up for our patreon which you can find at patreon.com slash ltrfi pod uh i would like to give a warm welcome back to the patron circle to good friend of the show raul who you can listen to on the nerdcore podcast what a network. professional you are look at you go I know. That was a really great segue, wasn't it? <laughs> Ruined entirely by the fact that we then called out what a great segue it was. I, I um, called out your segue. So one, I've completely put like ground this to a halt, but go on. Just Good staring luck. at Tyler through the Zoom camera. Uh, anyway, so uh, welcome back. We very much appreciate your contribution. Uh, tiers are available as low as $1, and you can also get your very own shout out on this show. Uh, at the $10 reward tier, you get to pick a movie for us to talk about. And so far, the only movie we've had picked for us was a Todd Salons film that was really upsetting. So if anybody else wants to weigh in, we're down at any time. So yeah. Um, if you would like to chat with us, you can tweet us on Twitter at LTRFIPod. If you have something to say that is longer than 280 characters, you can email us at LTRFIPod at gmail.com. And finally, we also have an Instagram, which is, you guessed it, at LTRFIPod. Uh, we will be back later this month with our first time guest and producer, Landon DeFever, talking about two films on the Criterion Collection called The Piano Teacher and Fat Girl. So if you'd like to do your homework beforehand, you can go ahead and watch those now. And we will catch you then. Stay safe. Stay healthy. <laughs>